Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'm speaking with Victor McFarland, an assistant professor of history at the University of Missouri, about his stunning new book called Oil Powers, A History of the U.S.-Saudi Alliance. It was published this year by Columbia University Press. The relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States is important, odd, and as both regimes have tried to keep their citizens from knowing the extent of the relationship, challenging to study. But Victor McFarland does a fantastic job historicizing this alliance. He shows how it contributed to financialization, how it helped entrench a world order based on oil, and how it tugged both countries rightward from the 1970s on. Thanks for coming on the show, Victor. Thanks so much for inviting me, Dexter. It's great to talk with you. Yeah, I mean, hopefully from uh, my little preamble, uh, you can hear my excitement for this book. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, no, I'm really happy that we're getting a chance to talk about um, uh, an an aspect of U.S. foreign relations, a really important alliance that um, we actually don't know that much about, um, surprisingly. and so just to begin, um, you know, we're going to be spending the hour trying to figure out the shape of this alliance. Um, but I want to know how and why did you decide to do a project on the U.S.-Saudi alliance? That's a good question. It started out with an interest in the Arabic language. As an undergrad, I started studying Arabic mainly because I thought the alphabet looked beautiful and I wanted to know how to write it. Uh, and at that point, I was studying. American history. Uh, I was actually a 19th century Americanist and eventually uh, wanted to find a way to combine those interests and to, uh, to also combine my interest with contemporary world affairs and what was happening in the Middle East and with U.S. foreign policy. So I decided to work on uh, the most recent topic in U.S. foreign relations with the Middle East, where the documents were reasonably open. Uh, And at that time, it was the 1970s. And as you mentioned, there was not a lot of great literature by historians uh, about Saudi Arabia, uh, with some exceptions. But most of the work was by political scientists and anthropologists and journalists. Um, So there was an opening there uh, to do a new project. And and the more that I looked at U.S.-Saudi relations, the more fascinated I got topic. So it just went from there once I was in grad school. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping that you could just give listeners a really quick summary of what the U.S.-Saudi relationship actually is and has been. So perhaps you can say a little bit about um, when the alliance began and how the two countries have benefited or at least thought they were benefiting from the alliance. Sure. And first, I should say, even calling it an alliance is controversial. And there Mm -hmm. are people who would object to that term. Uh, Very often, you hear it called a special relationship or a partnership. And that's the typical language that the US and Saudi governments use. And it's reflected in a lot of literature on this topic. Um, I'm relatively unusual in using the term alliance to describe what the US and Saudi Arabia have. The case against using that term is that they've never signed a formal defense treaty. So the U.S. has no relationship with Saudi Arabia equivalent to the one it has with its allies in NATO, for example. Um, But I would argue by any common sense definition, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are clearly allies and have been at least since the 1970s. The United States arms uh, the Saudi regime, arms the Saudi military, uh, has come directly to the military aid of Saudi Arabia uh, many times, but most notably during the Persian Gulf War in 1990 to 91. Uh, but there are a lot of smaller scale ways in which the U.S. military has, uh, has helped Saudi Arabia, uh, most controversially over the last few years, uh, by giving logistical support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen, uh, which has uh, inflicted such a terrible toll on the Yemeni people. Uh, And so I don't think there's been any doubt in the eyes of most countries around the world or in U.S. and Saudi policymakers eyes since at least since the Gulf War. And I would argue since the 1970s that the United States has extended its military protection over Saudi Arabia. Um, And 
by a common sense definition, that's alliance. Uh, so in, in terms of when that began, the U.S.-Saudi relationship started with the very first diplomatic contacts in the 1920s and 1930s, just as the Saudi state was coalescing. Uh, and it picked up steam with the uh, discovery of oil in Saudi Arabia by an American company in the late 1930s. Uh, but for a long time, Saudi Arabia was not a very high priority in the eyes of U.S. policymakers uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, and it wasn't until the oil crisis of the 1970s that Saudi Arabia really became a top American interest in the Middle East in the eyes of U.S. policymakers. And the scale of the relationship just exploded. Um, huge arms sales, huge Saudi investments, in the United States, much closer contacts uh, between U.S. and Saudi leaders at multiple different levels of their government. Um, so I would say the alliance coalesced during the 1970s. And the foundation that was laid then is still very much in place today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this alliance is really like completely facilitated by oil. Um, and, um, you know, the, the title of your book is Oil Power. And so you're looking at how the, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia um, and, um, you know, their, their powers as states are really enabled by oil. Um, do you want to say something about this concept that you're working with, um, oil power? Sure. So one of the things I'm doing with that phrase is to emphasize that the United States is an oil power too. Uh, I think Americans have a real tendency to other or exoticize petrostates and to think Saudi Arabia is in a totally different category from the United States, an abnormal category. It's not a normal state uh, because it's dependent on oil. And there's no doubt that uh, the Saudi regime depends for its revenue on oil sales and has for decades, um, and that its international influence uh, is funded by oil and that uh, the Saudi regime has the support that it has from the United States uh, in large part because of oil, uh, either directly or indirectly. So it wouldn't be controversial to say Saudi Arabia is an oil power. Uh, I think it's important to remind people, though, that the United States has historically been an oil power too. Uh, the growth of American military power and economic power in the 20th century was facilitated by the fact that the United States was by far the world's biggest oil producer. Um, that was clearest during World War II when the United States fueled literally fueled the entire allied war effort um, and made more oil than all the other countries in the world combined. Wow. And that uh, moment of the rise of the United States to superpower status, uh, very directly fueled by American oil, stuck around in the U.S. national consciousness. And even after the United States became a net importer just a few years later in the late 40s, uh, and then became more vulnerable to, to oil supply disruptions in the 70s. Um, that was such a rude awakening and such a psychological shock to a lot of Americans, in part because they remembered the 1940s and they uh, thought of oil as a vital ingredient in national power. And so to see uh, American oil power threatened by the Arab oil embargo in 73 and by some of the other turmoil in the oil market in the 70s was. Uh, was such a shock to many Americans that they uh, they reacted by demanding a return to national energy independence and failing that, a strong American military presence in the Middle East to retain some uh, influence over the flow of that oil. Uh, and that's a big part of the story I tell about the U.S.-Saudi alliance during the 70s. Mm -hmm. And why Saudi Arabia? Uh, I mean, there are tons of oil producing countries around the world, but um, U.S. policymakers decided that it was Saudi Arabia that was going to be the most important one um, for strategic reasons. Um, can you say something a little bit about that? Yeah, I find that question really interesting, uh, in part because a lot of people don't think that that's really a question at all, uh, that they would say, well, Saudi Arabia has the oil and the United States needs it. So obviously, Saudi Arabia is going to United States. I think a lot of uh, both Americans and Saudis have some version of that story uh, in their, their head. And it's one that's 
very much been encouraged by U.S. and Saudi policymakers. So in the book, uh, in the introduction, I quote uh, Prince Fahad, uh, one of the top Saudi royals in the 1970s, saying, Saudi Arabia is the world's biggest oil producer and the United States is the world's biggest oil consumer. And so it's only natural that we have this kind of relationship. Uh, and that was a very deliberate rhetorical move. I should say he, he was wrong. Saudi Arabia was not actually the world's biggest oil producer, just the biggest exporter. Um, but even if, even if Saudi Arabia had been the world's biggest oil producer, uh, it wouldn't have made the U.S.-Saudi alliance inevitable. And people like Fahad and U.S. leaders talked as if uh, it did, as if the alliance was inevitable because it got them off the hook for the political choices that they made. Uh, if you think about other countries that uh, at different times have been bigger oil producers than Saudi Arabia, like Russia, uh, for example, or the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War, or other big exporters like Iran, Venezuela, they have a lot of oil. Uh, Libya under Muammar al-Qaddafi, none of them had anything like the relationship that Saudi Arabia had with the United States. So just having a lot of oil or exporting a lot of oil didn't guarantee that alliance. Uh, it, it had a lot more to do with the fact that the United States looked at Saudi Arabia and saw a regime that they thought they could work with, uh, and a regime that was committed to a particular kind of relationship with the United States and not just exporting oil, but using the revenue that it got from that oil to do things that the United States wanted, like buy U.S. weapons, like invest the surplus in the United States, like use that revenue to prop up anti-communist regimes and support anti-communist causes like Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, would be the most famous example. Um, so there was a lot more to that relationship than oil. Uh, and I, I'm not the first person to argue that. That's a, a theme in Rachel Bronson's book, Thicker Than Oil, uh, for example, um, another book about the U.S.-Saudi relationship. But I, I try to uh, unfold that in more detail than has been known before. And, and particularly on the U.S. side, there are more sources available now that uh, let us tell that story in new ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's something that your book does extremely well. It shows that a lot of work had to go into this alliance. Um, and all of that work um, suggests that it wasn't inevitable. Um, because had that work not been done, that, you know, like those like, um, you know, delegations and, um, you know, diplomatic initiatives and uh, um, corporate initiatives and so on, um, uh, you know, without all that work, it's, it's, it's certainly possible that the US would have um, allied more closely with another oil producing regime. Right. And it's important to point out too, that for a long time, American officials were quite skeptical of the prospects for the Saudi regime. They weren't even sure that it would survive. Uh, for, for a long time in the 40s and 50s and 60s, it was very common to see US officials predicting the Saudi regime uh, would collapse in the fairly near future, uh, particularly during the, the uh, period of Gamal Abdel Nasser's leadership of the Arab nationalist movement in the 50s and 60s, a lot of U.S. policymakers thought that uh, Egypt was, was really the main player in Arab politics and that Nasser represented the future of Arab politics. And Saudi Arabia was this strange, anachronistic, backward regime. Uh, and so it's, it was not at all inevitable that the U.S. would uh, place all its bets on Saudi Arabia and commit to that uh, alliance. Even as late as the 70s, Iran was really the key U.S. security partner in the Persian Gulf, not Saudi Arabia. Uh, so a lot of things had to happen for the United States to make Saudi Arabia its key partner in that region the way it is today. Mm -hmm. And another theme in the relationship and the alliance is um, this really odd relationship between um, domestic politics and foreign policy. I mean, you really show how um, they can diverge um, quite a bit. So, you know, both the Saudi government and the U.S. government um, wanted this alliance, but they also wanted to insulate their citizens from knowing about the alliance. Um, and uh, um, like this, this secrecy is what makes studying this um, alliance um, so difficult. 
Um, but it's also um, from the perspective of these policymakers, what even enables this alliance to persist. Um, can you explain why, um, uh, well, maybe we can start with this, uh, the Saudi government, why the Saudi government wanted to keep this secret? Yeah, the, the Saudi government was always having to balance conflicting impulses uh, in both their foreign policy and their domestic policy and trying to please different audiences or at least not aggravate different audiences too much. Uh, and that pulled them in different directions. So the Saudi government from quite early on, from the 30s and 40s, uh, from the very beginning of the modern Saudi state, was committed to a close commercial relationship with American oil companies and later to a close security partnership with the U.S. Uh, government. But uh, for a variety of reasons, the uh, Saudi alliance with the United States was quite unpopular uh, with large segments of the Saudi public. The usual way that you would see that discussed in the United States is that the Saudi regime was torn between westernization and traditional values and that they had to um, to placate a very conservative uh, Islamic um, audience, Muslim audience at home that didn't like an alliance with a non-Muslim power. And it's true that that some segments of the Saudi opposition talked that way uh, and framed their opposition in Islamic terms, uh, in part because the Saudi government had so relentlessly uh, made Islam the basis of their own legitimacy at home, that to counter those claims, uh, the opposition had to make Islamic claims as well, uh, religious claims. So uh, also because the, the bits of the Saudi opposition that attained worldwide notoriety are folks like Osama bin Laden, um, who framed their critique of the Saudi state in those terms. Uh, but one of the things that folks who study uh, Saudi Arabia uh, have, have shown recently is that the uh, that there was a Saudi left uh, going back to the mid 20th century, that there was a whole wide array of opposition groups, um, some of them very, very different from the hardline uh, Salafi or Wahhabi uh, Islamic conservatives, groups like Al Qaeda, uh, including Marxists and trade unionists, and uh, probably most dangerous of all in the eyes of the Saudi regime were the left wing Arab nationalists in the 50s and 60s, inspired by people like Gamal Abdel Nasser. Um, so that's a story where I engage with, with new work that uh, people like Rosie Bashir and Bob Vitalis and others have written uh, over the last uh, decade or two. And those left-leaning parts of the Saudi public objected to the U.S., uh, the alliance with the United States on anti-imperialist grounds. And uh, and based on the argument that the United States was uh, trying to suppress left-leaning movements all over the world and allowing the Saudi government to establish an authoritarian right-wing uh, system at home. And so for that reason, the, the Saudi government uh, often worked pretty hard to shield the full extent of their alliance with the United States from the eyes of their own people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, it's... Um, it, in, in some of the chapters, uh, it's really clear that, um, you know, public knowledge of the relationship would cause, uh, you know, huge problems. So, for instance, during the 1967 war, um, you have a, um, a, a really interesting scene where um, King Faisal, um, you know, he, he goes before a large crowd, which is something that he doesn't normally do. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and basically decries um, Zionism. But then the crowd, uh, you know, goes even further and they start chanting oil, oil, cut off oil from America, Britain and Israel. Faisal cut off the oil. Um, and so th there is a, a really clear separation between sort of how these like elite policymakers are seeing the alliance and how um, everyday um, Saudi citizens are seeing the alliance. Yeah, that was a fascinating scene to work on because it was reported one way in the Saudi press where the official Saudi Gazette, Omar Kura, uh, reported Faisal's speech. And uh, it was a, a fairly brief story, but said Faisal denounced uh, Israel. This was during the, the 1967 uh, June war between Israel and its Arab neighbors. And 
didn't say anything about the crowd's reaction other than that they cheered Faisal and, and supported the Saudi regime's stance in the war. Um, but the Saudi opposition literature uh, described that that scene in very different terms and described the crowd uh, getting quite angry uh, and Faisal retreating in panic and his his guards having to clear a path for him uh, out of this. It was actually a horse racing uh, arena, uh, clear a path out of this facility for, for him to leave. And he, he got quite alarmed that the crowd was that agitated. Uh, and then if you look at the way that the uh, essentially, the intelligence department of Aramco, the American-owned oil company, reported that same scene. They corroborated what the Saudi opposition said, that, that things really got out of hand and the crowd went much further than, uh, than what Faisal wanted them to do. And that's a good example of the Saudi regime trying to have this very careful balancing act where they criticize the United States, they criticize Israel, uh, but they don't let it get too far. And sometimes they slip it up. They slip up and uh, and they lose control of the narrative, and that's what happened then in 1967. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, um, to take that a little bit further, um, you know, uh, like large political assemblies were not a thing that um, uh, the um, the government appreciated and and um, and permitted all that often. Um, but then, uh, in this case, they they let this happen, let people express themselves on the grounds of. Uh, um, you know, a facility that was built for the royal family. And so you can kind of see um, how the, uh, um, the Saudi government is really trying to set the terms for, um, for politics. Yeah, public space is rare in Saudi Arabia, both in the metaphorical sense that there's a, a free press and there's not much space for civil society. Uh, and then in, in a very literal physical sense that there just aren't big squares like Tahrir Square in Cairo. Uh, or Martyrs Square in Beirut, the kind of places that you associate with big demonstrations and political gatherings and that have enabled popular mobilization in Egypt and Lebanon. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, I think quite deliberately, those spaces just don't really exist. And so there's private space, there are homes and businesses, and there's uh, religious space, there's the mosque. Um, but the government is very reluctant to allow any kind of secular uh, space for civil society. Um, and I think in that scene in 1967, you see what they were afraid of, that if you just let people gather in one place and let them say anything politically, even if it's a demonstration sponsored by the regime, things can get out of hand pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to kind of stay on this, <clears throat> in this moment, um, you know, during this war, um, the, um, the Saudi government was, yeah, again, like, um, you know, like, um, publicly lambasting uh, um, Israel and Zionism, and uh, um, uh, and you know, and committing troops and so on. But um, in actuality, they actually. Well, do you want to just say like what they were actually doing? Right. So they said that they were sending troops to the fight. Uh, in reality, they they slow walked it, and they sent only a small uh, group of soldiers and made sure that they wouldn't arrive until the fighting was over. Uh, and then that Saudi military unit was stationed uh, near the borders with Israel uh, for the next several years. And the CIA speculated that one reason why that happened was not actually to, to pose any kind of threat to Israel. Uh, it's pretty clear that the Saudi regime did not want to get in a, a real war with Israel, um, but that perhaps those soldiers were stationed outside Saudi borders just to keep them out of the country so they could launch a coup. Uh, the Saudi government constantly worried about the reliability of its own armed forces uh, for, for very understandable reasons that Arab regimes fell much more often to a coup from their own military than they did uh, to foreign invasion. And the, the Saudi government had a lot of examples that they could think of um, from the coups in uh, Egypt that brought Gamal Abdel Nasser to power, to, uh, to Iraq, the top of the Iraqi monarchy, to uh, the top lane of the Libyan monarchy, they didn't want that to happen. And so they, they deliberately kept their military quite weak and divided. Uh, and it was not in any condition to fight Israel or any other uh, militarily competent adversary. And the, the Saudi government did that. Great. And so, so far, you've really um, uh, illuminated why 
the Saudis would might, you know, might want to keep this relationship secret. But so too did the United States. And, uh, and I was just wondering if you could um, share a little bit about why um, you know, U.S. policymakers, why the State Department and the White House didn't want its citizens to know about this relationship. One of the things I was really surprised to learn when I started researching this story was how far back the domestic opposition went uh, in the United States to the U.S.-Saudi alliance. Uh, it's something that we're familiar with today, that there's uh, quite a bit of congressional criticism of, for example, Donald Trump's support of the Saudi regime and U.S. weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. And what I was really fascinated to see was that uh, there was opposition in pretty similar terms in the U.S. Congress uh, and among other political actors in the United States all the way back to the 1940s, just about the beginning of any relationship at all. Uh, between the Saudi government and the U.S. government, that opposition was often framed around Zionism. Uh, so the most vocal opponents of the U.S.-Saudi alliance tended to be supporters of Jewish settlement in Palestine and then supporters of the Israeli state. Uh, but those um, those critiques of the U.S.-Saudi alliance and of the United States for uh, for partnering with a regime that was quite blatantly anti-Semitic, uh, in addition to being uh, very strongly anti-Zionist. Uh, those critiques were often linked to much broader concerns about the growth of presidential power and the tight connection between corporate power and government authority. Uh, so, for example, there's this famous meeting between FDR and Abdulaziz, or Ibn Saud, the, the first king of modern Saudi Arabia, in February 1945. And I found that uh, that there was quite a bit of criticism of that meeting, including from the U.S. Congress uh, and arguments that uh, FDR had made some kind of secret deal with Ibn Saud, possibly to sell out Israel. Uh, and it's no accident that that those critiques were emerging in the 1940s, uh, right at the end of the war, uh, this period of massive growth of U.S government power and especially the power of the national security state uh, and the commitment to a particular kind of aggressive internationalism and uh, assertion of U.S. power abroad, um, the kind of story that Stephen Wertheim is telling in, in his new book that will be out soon. Uh, and one of the ways to, to critique that uh, kind of unaccountable uh, power of the executive branch um, was to uh, to point to this emerging relationship with Saudi Arabia, which uh, was negotiated and managed uh, almost entirely by the executive branch, very little congressional involvement, uh, and often kept kept secret from Congress. And, and that secrecy was designed to sideline this opposition, um, but it uh, became a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where the, the more secretive the alliance was, the more it was shielded from public view the more mm -hmm. suspicious it looked in the eyes of its critics. And that really set a pattern that continues to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you had to deal with all of this secrecy as a scholar. Um, and so I would love to hear about what the research experience was like, um, you know, trying to um, just even figure out what happened when, um, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, both sides tried to keep the relationship secret. And then on the other hand, um, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is not known for, you know, like liberal access to its, you know, state records. Um, and <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. 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 And so I, I, I just, you know, like, what did you encounter when you um, were researching this book? So Saudi Arabia is a very difficult place to do research. And I knew that going in. Uh, it, it was very difficult even for me to get a uh, visa to uh, come to Saudi Arabia. It took about 11 months of applying and pestering people. Uh, and eventually it, it happened uh, because I was at a conference at Princeton University and a senior Saudi royal, uh, Prince Turki al-Faisal, was there. Uh, and I got to talk to him briefly and, and talk to some of the folks who were there with him. Uh, and the uh, the visa was delivered very shortly after that, uh, mm -hmm. and I I 
got to be based at the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies, which uh, Turkey uh, helped run uh, and named after King Faisal, the king during the 1960s and the first half of the 70s, the king during the time of the oil crisis. So I got office space. I got letters of introduction. Uh, and even that, of course, only got me so far. There really aren't government archives that are open to uh, researchers, either uh, Saudi or foreign. Uh, so I ended up working a lot with published records. Uh, I read through all the Saudi newspapers that I could find, um, all the published speeches. Uh, I got interviews with some former policymakers, uh, Saudi leaders from that era, uh, including Prince Turkey. Uh, but uh, even the published sources, although they came from a press that was heavily censored, uh, and um, they didn't reveal internal debates within the Saudi government. I thought they were still quite fascinating because they revealed the way that the Saudi regime wanted itself to be seen in the eyes of an Arabic-speaking audience, both the domestic Saudi audience, but also elsewhere in the Arab world. Uh, and sometimes that was uh, similar to the story that they were telling uh, U.S. officials behind closed doors in English. And sometimes it was entirely different. And so to be able to triangulate between those and, and look at the official Saudi narrative uh, and then look at what was going on behind the scenes, I think revealed new dimensions of this alliance. And if you, can if you like, I can, I can talk a bit about the challenges on the U.S. side, too, uh, which are a yeah, bit different. I, I, yeah, no, I, mean, I, th I think um, uh, conversations about um, you know, how scholars did their research um, are really valuable. So, uh, yeah, so please go ahead. Well, on the American side, in some ways, it's the opposite problem and that the volume of sources is so huge. Uh, anyone who works on U.S. foreign relations, I know you know this, Dexter, that if you go to uh, RG59 and College Park, you can very quickly just get overwhelmed uh, if you're not doing something very narrow. Uh, if you're not working on one or two years, uh, the, the volume of sources become unmanageable. Uh, so that's always a challenge, figuring out how to find the narrative thread through this mass of sources. But also, even though I was working on documents that were somewhere between 40 and 50 years old, for the most part, uh, I still had trouble getting access to some U.S. sources. Almost anything related to the details of military or intelligence policy was still classified. Even a lot of the State Department stuff was heavily redacted. Uh, and one of the, the really challenging things about studying the U.S.-Saudi alliance, especially in the 70s, was that uh, important parts of that relationship were conducted outside the normal diplomatic channels. And uh, in Saudi Arabia, arguably the CIA station chief Riyadh was more powerful than the ambassador, uh, or at the very least, a lot of what would be uh, normally conducted through the embassy in another country went through the, uh, the CIA in Saudi Arabia. There were back channels that circumvented the State Department, and uh, a lot of the really sensitive stuff went that way, and a lot of that is still not available. Uh, some of it, fortunately, has been declassified thanks to the, the efforts of the State Department's Office of the Historian through their first volumes, uh, quite a bit is still locked down. So doing this project meant uh, filing FOIA and mandatory review requests to look at what I could, but also a lot of reading between the lines. Uh, and in some cases, I had to resort to a bit of guesswork and, and try to figure out, um, you know, patch together what information I could from interviewing people and from what you could tell from the documents and, uh, and get some sense of what was passing through those secret back channels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Um, you know, thankfully for, for me as a dissertator right now, um, the, the problem of uh, too many sources has been uh, dealt with by the pandemic. And so... <laughs> <laughs> well, so there's a silver I can, lining, I guess. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and yeah, so like, let, let's, let's move on to the 1970s, which is um, really the, the climax of um, the... Um, the book, um, at least as I see it. And so one of the, um, you know, the key moments is the oil embargo um, of 73, 74. And this is a really interesting moment because um, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, it aimed its oil power weapon at the, um, at the world, at the United States. 
Um, and so I, and, and you know, and, and this is like in the context of the, uh, the two countries still having an alliance. And so um, I was hoping that you could briefly explain um, what the embargo was, why it happened, um, uh, and then we'll perhaps talk about um, uh, some of the consequences. Yeah, that's a complicated question because the embargo has come to be a, an umbrella term for a lot of things that happened in late 1973 that weren't all necessarily part of the embargo itself. Uh, so in October 1973, the Arab oil producing countries declared uh, separate embargoes on the United States. It was not actually a collective decision. It happened one by one. So Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Abu Dhabi. Uh, the other big oil producers at different points during the October 1973 war, uh, they all individually declared oil embargoes against the United States um, and then agreed to maintain that embargo uh, until uh, Israel withdrew from the Arab territories that it had occupied in 1967. Uh, at the same time, they also, uh, some of them, at least, cut production. And Saudi Arabia was the biggest exporter, so its production cuts were the most important. Uh, that was a very blunt instrument where, unlike the embargo, it wasn't targeted at the United States specifically. Production cuts sent oil prices up everywhere in the world. Uh, and this all happened against the backdrop of uh, what people were already calling the energy crisis. There was already turmoil in the world oil market. Uh, this was right at the moment when the big Anglo-American oil companies uh, like what are today ExxonMobil or BP or Shell, uh, they were losing control over the big oil fields in the Middle East as those were getting nationalized. So there were some long-term changes that were happening that were exacerbated um, by some short-term developments during the October 1973 war. And all of this combined to send uh, oil prices skyrocketing. And it so happened that the United States had a very cumbersome system of domestic price controls that didn't react well uh, to this, um, this supply shortage or price increase. And the result was the, uh, the long lines at gasoline stations and skyrocketing prices in the United States that people remember from 1973 and 1974. Uh, the, the embargo itself was actually not very effective. It was fairly easy for the oil companies to circumvent it. And Saudi Arabia didn't even fully abide by their own embargo. They, they secretly continued shipping oil to the U.S. military, uh, which was the only, uh, the only actor in the United States that really depended heavily on Persian Gulf oil. Uh, for the most part, the oil that Americans consumed came from places other than the Gulf. Uh, so Saudi Arabia softened their own embargo secretly, of course, um, and they, they kept that secret even from most of the Saudi government. They continued to ship oil uh, to the U.S. military. Um, but even, even though the embargo itself is not all that effective, it came to stand in for this whole set of bigger changes in the world oil market that meant much higher prices and a lot more uncertainty, uh, uh, uncertainty about oil supplies. For consumers in the United States. And that, that was quite a rude awakening for a lot of Americans who were accustomed uh, to oil prices being pretty steady. Uh, they had been very steady for the previous quarter century uh, and not having to worry much about the availability of oil. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a really discombobulating moment for Americans um, for all the reasons that you stated. It's like, you know, they're increasingly dependent on. Um, oil imports. Um, yeah, there's this uh, energy crisis that everyone is worried about, and also, um, you know, uh, at the exact same time, um, the uh, you know oil-producing states in the Middle East um, are accumulating vast reserves of cash, um, and so there's this real um, uh, shift in power, or at least um, so it seems. Um, and so, yeah, so like all these. Uh, um, all these things um, play out in the 1970s. And I guess, yeah, like maybe a good place to start is, uh, um, uh, is money. Uh, I mean, you know, like Saudi Arabia and other oil producing states um, got really wealthy really quickly. Um, and it became a really, you know, big and political question 
um, you know, like what to do with all of that cash. Um, and so, um, uh, you provide a, a history of something that I actually didn't know anything about, but was really flabbergasted by. Um, uh, that's uh, um, the J E C O R. I don't know if you if you'd call that J Core. Or- yeah, I, I think of it as J Core. I'm not actually sure if that's an official pronunciation or not. Okay. We, yeah, for the cont- for the purposes of this conversation, we will refer to it as JCore, and um, you, you'll have to um, uh, explain the abbreviation or the acronym. Um, but um, you know, it's essentially this U.S. Um, institution that is designed to um, uh, get um, Saudi Arabia to buy as much crap from the U.S. as possible, and like in many cases, it just turned out to be institutionalized grift. Um, so I would love for you to, um, uh, yeah, just maybe elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. So JCOR was the U.S.-Saudi Arabian Joint Commission for Economic Cooperation, uh, which was a joint body negotiated by Henry Kissinger and Prince Fahad and people working for them uh, in the immediate aftermath of the 1973-74 to 74 embargo. This was supposed to be part of the uh, deal that would put the U.S.-Saudi alliance back on track after the embargo. And it was officially uh, a way for the United States to help guide Saudi economic development and provide Saudi Arabia with technical expertise and the goods to let Saudi Arabia convert its oil revenues into a more sustainable base for uh, economic growth in the future. It wouldn't be so totally dependent on oil. In practice, you're absolutely right that it, it was frequently just a uh, means for channeling Saudi oil revenues into the pockets of American corporations. Uh, and part of a, a broader pattern of uh, Saudi spending expanding so dramatically uh, in the 1970s that it attracted uh, what one U.S. diplomat called vultures from all over the world, but a lot of American vultures uh, of folks uh, trying to get in on this gold rush and trying to sell whatever they could to. Uh, to Saudi Arabia, and in some cases, you called it crap, and I think that's a that's a accurate description. Uh, there is one uh, interview with a, a former U.S. diplomat that I ran across where he talked about part of his job as an economic officer uh, with the State Department was selling this stuff to Saudi buyers that included things like uh, raincoats, which were totally unnecessary in that climate. Um, they, they were not suitable for Saudi Arabia and they hastily rebranded them as tarps that you could use for camp tarps for Bedouin and somehow unloaded them on, on a Saudi buyer. Um, so a lot of what JCOR did was, uh, was help channel some of these revenues. And even uh, some of the folks who worked for JCOR, some of the American bureaucrats, became kind of disgusted with what they were doing and uh, and wrote an expose or two about uh, how it, it was really a, a means for enriching American companies. They did things like uh, they they were providing technical expertise to Saudi Arabia, which included setting a lot of different um, standards, uh, technical standards. This this might overlap a bit or or connect with the, the story that um, that Daniel Amarwar tells uh, in. Uh, in his new book, uh, the importance of technical standards, uh, and so they they would say things like, "Well, your electrical grid has to operate at such and such a voltage, and your appliances have to work with the grid in such and such a way." And when there were competing standards, American or European or Japanese, JCOR would almost invariably recommend the American standards, which meant that business had to go to American companies, uh, and this was a, a easy way for the United States to try to get some of those dollars back that were flowing out of the country to, to pay for, um, for uh, imported oil. And of course, a lot of people in the Saudi government were quite aware of what was happening. And sometimes it was excused as a way to strengthen the U.S.-Saudi relationship that was needed for security reasons. Um, but sometimes uh, Saudi officials too were, were really quite disappointed in JCOR and it, it never fulfilled the hopes of uh, of the people who had designed it originally. It, it never reached the scale that they hoped, um, but it, it did help solidify that alliance during that critical period, mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other aspect of the, the, the vast monetary resources of, 
of Saudi Arabia in this time period um, were all the investments um, that they made in the United States and in U.S. companies and banks and um, you know U.S. treasuries. Um, and I was really surprised in uh, in, in this um, section of your book by just how public this debate was. So you have U.S. policymakers and um, you know the Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the State Department trying to um, uh, you know attract invest Saudi investment into the United States. But then on the other hand, you have um, you know um, congressmen and uh, and other people who are really critical of um, uh, and nervous of how much um, Saudi Arabia is investing in the U.S. Um, because they see this as sort of the um, of Saudi Arabia basically you know like buying power within the United States. Can you can you um, sh- share this really fascinating story? So it was operating on a couple of levels. In some ways, that phenomenon was kept very very secret. Uh, the the details of Saudi investment in the United States were one of the most closely guarded secrets in the American government. Uh, and in some cases, the uh, the Treasury Department and other branches of the U.S. government that were working with the Saudi Central Bank, SAMA, uh, to attract this money, had to reprimand the CIA for releasing too much information to Congress and the public. So when the CIA is getting chided for being too, <laughs> too open, uh, you know, something, something is weird. Uh, something's <laughs> off with this picture. Uh, and so I cite a few examples of, it, it's almost comical to look at some of these documents that uh, I, I have one as an image in the book where they're talking about Saudi investment in the United States. Uh, this included Saudi investment in um, U.S. Treasury bonds, uh, also in the, the mortgage market. So this is an early example of financialization of American mortgages, uh, that the U.S. government was working very hard to attract Saudi funding to Freddie May and, uh, or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to, to prop up the U.S. Or, or attract funds to the U.S. housing market. Um, they released these documents to Congress and redacted parts of the document where they talked about where the money was coming from. And it's very obvious. You can just count the letters and you can see where they're saying the Saudis or Saudi Arabia, but it all had to be removed. So the details, they tried to keep secret, but you're right. Uh, the fact that huge Saudi investments were flowing into the United States was not something that kept secret. Uh, it was the subject of a lot of debate in Congress and U.S. press. Um, it was part of uh, of pop culture at the time. So if you know the movie Network, um, the the deranged newscaster's rant that's the most quoted part of that movie, the I'm mad as hell uh, rant, was about Arab investment in the United States and, and the Saudis buying up American companies. Uh, and so you see this interesting debate between, on the one hand, uh, critics of the U.S.-Saudi alliance saying the Saudi regime just carried out an oil embargo against us and they're anti-Israel. And uh, this was often wrapped up with a certain amount of Islamophobia and, um, and uh, Orientalist stereotyping about the Arab world. Uh, so people saying for various reasons, we don't want their money and we don't want uh, those people. We don't want the Saudis buying up American businesses. And on the other hand, the U.S. government trying very, very hard to attract them, at least the executive branch. Uh, And uh, sometimes that effort being defended uh, in terms that that would be very familiar to uh, anyone who's who's familiar with the Washington consensus or what's what's happened in in the world economy uh, since the the end of the 20th century of, well, we have to compete and there's a world marketplace for capital. And if the, the Arab oil exporters are the ones that have capital, then we can't let Europe or Japan get that money. We've got to give them attractive terms in the United States. And if that means offering them secrecy and if it means deregulation and exempting them from certain rules, well, uh, that's, that's a reasonable price to pay for economic competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I... Don't want to get into it too much just because we are running out of time, but um, you actually have some evidence that the uh, of, of like the treasury's understanding of these investments as kind of um, almost like insurance against future embargoes. 
um, because, you know, like as um, uh, Saudi Arabia invests more and more into um, the United States, uh, you're, you're like, it basically binds these, you know, an oil producing state with an oil consuming state. Um, and so it's, um, yeah, this, this like geopolitical um, maneuver that the, the treasury was um, uh, aiming at. Um, but I'll have to just uh, let the readers uh, look, look at that in the book. Um, just to move on a little bit, something that I was also really um, uh, surprised by and, and interested in was your argument that um, the alliance and the influence of Saudi Arabia actually helped pull um, U.S. foreign policy um, rightward in, uh, you know, into more interventionist um, territory. Um, can you um, uh, share with listeners um, uh, like, um, what you mean by that and sort of why you're saying that? Saudi Arabia constantly encouraged the United States to be more aggressive in the Middle East, behind the scenes. In public, they were saying something very different. But in private, uh, Saudi officials constantly urged the United States to do more to fight communism in the region uh, and to give more aid to anti-communist causes. Uh, and that became a, a fairly potent argument during the 1970s in the hands of hawkish forces in uh, the U.S. government, um, who probably wanted those same policies for other reasons. Uh, but once Saudi Arabia became such an important oil supplier and supplier of investment capital to the United States, uh, and a more important player in regional politics, distributing aid to Jordan, Egypt, and a lot of other countries that the United States wanted to, to support too, uh, the argument that we have to maintain Saudi goodwill became I think a pretty potent argument in intra-governmental debates uh, in the United States. So it, probably the biggest example would be during the Carter administration, that this was an argument that his national security advisor, Brzezinski, uh, deployed to say, well, we have to act aggressively in Afghanistan. We have to act aggressively in the Horn of Africa uh, and so forth, because if we don't, the Saudis will lose confidence. Now, Brzezinski probably had his own reasons for wanting all of those policies, um, but, uh, but Saudi Arabia was a very excuse for him. Uh, and he made that argument publicly, in the, the famous arc of crisis uh, argument that the United States needed to get more involved in the region. Uh, so that was, that was one example. Uh, in, in other cases, it was even more obvious that uh, under Carter, for example, at one point, the United States rushes the shipment of military aid to North Yemen, even though almost all of the U.S. experts on the ground thought that North Yemen didn't need that aid. Um, they were involved in a, what turned out to be a very minor border clash with the Marxist regime in South Yemen. But the United States did it anyways because Saudi Arabia paid for the whole package and demanded it. Uh, they were worried about Marxist forces on their southern border. Uh, and so I think that was a case where it's fairly clear the United States undertook this intervention and got involved in a conflict it wouldn't have otherwise gotten involved in uh, almost solely to maintain Saudi goodwill. Uh, that's how important uh, Saudi preferences were to U.S. foreign policy at that point. And then there are some other cases where Saudi resources just enabled the U.S. Uh, executive branch to do things it couldn't have otherwise done. Saudi Arabia was an alternative revenue source uh, for foreign adventures that you didn't have to go to Congress to get support for. Uh, and the famous example would be Afghanistan uh, in the late 70s and the 80s. Saudi Arabia subsidized aid to the Mujahideen uh, there. Um, but there are other examples, some of which we know about, some of which we only have hints of, um, of U.S. Uh, adventurism in the Middle East and in some cases beyond that was subsidized by Saudi Arabia uh, in a way that then shielded it from public view and and congressional authority mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's super fascinating. And it shows how, um, uh, you know, U.S. policymakers saw Saudi Arabia as extremely useful um, in kind of like a, um, you know, post-Vietnam Vietnam War, um, uh, um, you know, congressional environment um, where there are a lot of, a lot more restrictions on um, the executive branch and uh, intervention. That's right. Although I don't think we can let Congress entirely off the hook here. One of the things I was most 
surprised by and sort of appalled by was to see how much congressional sentiment by the late 70s shifted in favor of very hawkish uh, right-wing stance in the Middle East um, because Saudi oil was thought at that point to be so vital to the United States that if the Soviet Union posed a threat to it um, by invading Afghanistan or getting more involved in the region, um, which and we now know those, those threats were greatly exaggerated. Um, but at the time, if that's how it looked, that, that the Soviet Union might be able to cut off the flow of oil to American allies or to the United States itself, then the U.S. had to get involved. And I was really surprised to see uh, at the end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s, even George McGovern was actually saying, if the Saudi regime looked like it should fall, the United States should send in the Marines and protect the Saudi government from their own people, from a domestic revolution. Wow. Which, you know, for George McGovern to say that uh, just a few years after Vietnam, it, it showed how uh, much the debate had shifted uh, by the end of the 70s and um, showed how much the ground was prepared for Reaganism even before Reagan himself became president. Yeah, that's a really revealing quote. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, we will not let Congress off the hook. Uh, <laughs> um, and so just getting to the end of your book, um, you write something that I thought, again, was really, really interesting and, and provocative. Um, and that's um, over time, Saudi Arabia became more like the United States, but the United States also became a bit more like Saudi Arabia. Can you um, share with listeners what you mean by that? Yeah, that's a good question. In part, what I'm trying to do is push back against the typical uh, U.S. belief that the United States can change other countries and isn't changed by them in return. Uh, so you see a lot of examples in the story I tell in the book of U.S. officials thinking they could reform Saudi Arabia or they could put pressure on Saudi Arabia to do this or that. Or over time, uh, Saudi Arabia would naturally come to look more like the United States. Uh, and it's true that uh, in the story I tell, there are a lot of examples of Saudi Arabia adopting certain American style institutions or being influenced by the United States uh, in different ways. But I also think that the United States was changed by this relationship. Uh, and one of the examples um, which we were just talking about is that the United States adopted a more hawkish stance in the Middle East and got uh, entangled deployed thousands of troops uh, and paved the way for what would happen in 1990 to 91 with the Gulf War and, uh, and then with the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11 and the continuing so-called global war on terror, uh, that that was uh, partly in response to Saudi preferences, that Saudi Arabia wanted more U.S. military involvement in the region uh, to protect the Saudi regime, uh, even though publicly they would almost always deny that. Uh, so they influenced American foreign policy in ways that uh, we're still paying the cost for, uh, very serious costs. But Saudi Arabia and the U.S.-Saudi alliance also resulted in some changes domestically in the United States. They expanded the power of the executive branch. Uh, they provided some new arguments for people who wanted deregulation and who wanted to accelerate the financialization of the U.S. economy uh, and the availability of these billions of dollars of Saudi investments uh, was a very attractive prize to, uh, to some of those folks who wanted to push the U.S. economy rightward in the 70s and 80s and have a particular kind of deregulation. Uh, and new secrecy uh, around U.S. foreign policy, around international economic relations, that was something that Saudi Arabia pushed for. Uh, now, I don't think that you can blame any of these big shifts, financialization and uh, more uh, market-oriented economics and a assertive U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. You can't blame any of that exclusively or even primarily on Saudi influence. But Saudi Arabia contributed to it uh, in alliance with U.S. policymakers and elites who wanted those same things for their zone their own reasons. So, uh, so after now more than a half a century of, uh, of close relations between the Saudi regime and the U.S. government, Saudi Arabia looks different than it did before, but so does the United States. Mm -hmm. Great. I think that's a really good place to leave the discussion about the book. Um, and 
as we always do on the New Books Network. Um, we ask um, what you're working on right now. I'm uh, doing a bit of a change of pace right now. I'm working on a small project that might be uh, a article or two, or it might be a short book about a very strange project by the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission during the period of the oil crisis uh, at the beginning of the 70s to frack for natural gas, but not using pressurized water and fluids, but rather doing it with nuclear explosives. Uh, And they did this three times with live tests. They plan to do it 30,000 times if they've gotten their way uh, to deploy this on a very big scale across the uh, gas and oil bearing regions of the American West. And for very good reasons, uh, those plans were abandoned. Uh, So I'm interested in telling that story. Wow. That's, that sounds like a, a super fascinating project. I'll look forward to, to reading it. I want to thank you again, Victor, for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, thank you, Dexter. It's been a pleasure talking. Yeah, and you've been listening to New Books in History, and we've been, dis- we've been speaking with Victor McFarland about his new book, Oil Powers, A History of the U.S.-Saudi Alliance. 